Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. This is On the Environment, a podcast by the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Ivana Andrade, a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, we're in the studio with Elizabeth Barlow-Rogers, a landscape designer, landscape preservationist, and writer. Betsy is known for her pioneering work in revitalizing Central Park. She was the park's first administrator and serves as the founding president of the Central Park Conservancy, an organization that restores and manages one of the world's most iconic urban parks. Betsy figures prominently in the park's rise from shambles in the 60s, and she's written multiple books on the topic. Today, she's here at Yale, where she earned her master's in city planning, and she's speaking with students tonight on environmental leadership and her years of work in New York. Thank you, Betsy, for being here. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure always to come back to Yale. I wanted to ask you first what you've learned over the years about the cultural meaning of place in Central Park. Um, How have you seen the park change and in turn transform the urban community? Well, the cultural meaning of place, you really have to look at it as meanings of place, meanings in different periods, and the same place can mean different things, different points in history. So tonight what we will be speaking about is the initial building of Central Park, it's totally, totally man-made, which a lot of people don't realize. How did they build it? What was the park like? How did they plant it? How did a new era where the emphasis was on sports and recreation, how did that affect a scenic, historic, romantic 19th century park? And then How did a whole cultural shift when American society became absolutely, well, maybe unglued is too strong a word, but when you had, um, I'm going to call it the hippie movement, Uh, and that's not pejorative, it's just, you know, that um, America has never been the same, and the park was the stage for that. So we'll see some images from that era, and that's also the time when the recreation layer was abused, and of course, the historic, beautiful 19th century park was nearly killed. And then the birth of the Conservancy occurred in 1980, a year after I was appointed Central Park Administrator because I was advocating, uh, strenuously advocating, uh, saving this great work of landscape art, this masterpiece of landscape design. What for you has been one of the most impactful or memorable elements of your work in Central Park? Well, It's been a a learning experience, of course. I came to my work as a as a writer. Uh, I'm actually not a landscape designer. I'm a landscape historian, and so I have 
a great interest in landscape design and you know lots and lots of relationships with landscape architects. But in the park, when we decided to quote unquote save Central Park, you can't just go and do that without having a plan. So with four landscape architects and consultants, specialists, soil scientists, hydrologists, social scientists doing our user study, all of these uh, people, we put together a plan three years between 82 and 85 to do the surveys and to do the park-wide recommendations. The park had never been looked at in its entirety since 1858 when the initial design was uh, accepted. And we uh, began to then break the park into its zones. It's like an interlocking jigsaw puzzle that everything fits together. It's not piecemeal. You cannot think of Central Park without thinking of its brilliant infrastructure and its circulation system. It's not just a piece of nature that people put a, a wall around and, and set it aside. It's, it's something much more interesting and complicated than that. So what is the cultural meaning of all that? In the 19th century, it uh, is a period, the Romantic period. It's really a great example. It comes really at the end of the Romantic era. The Romantic era starts in the 18th century. Think of Rousseau. Think of the um, early picturesque in England. The idea not of formal, regimented, geometrical gardens, but gardens that simulate nature, even if, I mean, they're nat natural, of course, but they're really naturalistic because they're, they're following. Nature is the guide for the designer. And that's what Central Park is to a very uh, supreme degree. So I think it's kind of the apotheosis, excuse me, of romanticism in landscape design. Well, that whole cultural impulse fades and you think of the 20th century, think of modernism. Think also in terms of parks. You have to think of sports, and you have to think of physical recreation. We write our values, whether it's Versailles or Central Park, authoritarian values of the Sun King at Versailles and the uh, romantic values of the 19th century in Central Park and the trans formative influence of the way in which people looked at the environment and looked at landscape design in the 20th century. Any landscape, whether it's a, a piece of nature, whether it's a ranch or a farm or a garden or a park, all landscapes are, have a component. They're partnerships between man and nature, human beings and nature. And that partnership 
has to be informed. And so that's what we're really talking about when we talk about a management and restoration plan. And notice that I put the word management first. You can't restore anything that you're not going to manage. So as you were designing this future of management, this management plan for Central Park, how did you reconcile these documents, some of the cultural ideas embedded in these documents from the 1850s with the fact that you were working in in the mid 20th century with with people who had maybe had different cultural values a different perspective on what the space meant and what its purpose was well that that's a good question because you have to understand that historic preservation uh, the, the movement of historic preservation it, it's really parallel with the movement toward environmental preservation, and they, they go hand in hand, and particularly in something like um, Central Park, that uh, you never can take something back. You can't take a natural environment back 100 years. You can't take any environment, uh, because there, everything is always being changed and transformed in some way. And certainly uh, in the park, you can't take that designed landscape back. When you're managing a park, you're, you're looking at all this transformation and you're looking at the societal transformations that have gone on. And you say, well, am I going to tear out that playground that was put in in the 1930s? Well, I don't think you really are because kids really like it and their parents go there every day and they're not going to, you're not going to be very popular if you tear that out. So we, it, it's these different overlays, but how do you inform the plan with a philosophy and a theory? And so it's not pure preservation, but it is the ideal of going back and looking and respecting the theories and ideas and the results of what the original designers did and and using those things to do something very simple but very hard and that is in our case to give you the mission statement to make Central Park once more clean safe and beautiful and, and, and people want you to shy away from the beauty word and say clean, safe, and green. No, beautiful. It's a good word. It fits with the, the fact that it's not really an, a natural environment. It's been designed and made by man, right? But it is natural in the sense that I mean, you have bird watchers from all over. I mean, nature goes on. Uh, it, it, as I said, it's a partnership. Uh, the design and the nature the processes of nature are still at work mm -hmm. within the context of this design landscape. Betsy, you're the president of the Foundation of Landscape Studies, which promotes and advances landscape history and historic landscape design, theory, and practice. How do you think these disciplines can help us cope with the ways our familiar landscapes are changing due to climate change? Well, I think that what we have to realize is that like all environmental alarms, 
the alarm bell has to go off and it has to ring a long time. And then people put it on snooze. And then it rings again. And then it maybe has to ring a couple more times. And this wake-up call, people have not listened to this wake-up call sufficiently. Uh, Think back to Rachel Carson. Think about the effect, finally, that that had. In the beginning, she was just dismissed as some nice little lady conservationist. But think of the power of her influence. And think of the... um, fact that raptors now have come back, condors and eagles and hawks and things, because pesticides are not being used. So I think that we're dealing in climate change, really with meteorological, it's even more difficult than when we're dealing with planetary things and practices that we have control over, more control over. But certainly, we do have control over our role in this. Nature will behave however nature will behave. There may be another ice age. There may be geological global warming going on. But the fact that we're exacerbating the heating of our planet is something that we can answer that wake-up call, and we can do what morally we should do in terms of our behavior. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about the C.L. Browning Ranch that you own in the Texas Hill Country. How has your work in, in landscape design and preservation shaped your vision for the ranch? C.L. Browning was my father, and in 1940. World War II was going on. He was uh, too old. He was still a young man, but he's in his 40s. He didn't serve in the war, but he was a general contractor, and he built uh, facilities, military facilities, which were um, our town, San Antonio, was very much uh, involved in Air Force bases and We were the head of 4th Army headquarters. Anyway, he had all of a sudden the means. He was a very poor boy growing up, uh, and now he had the means to buy property in this beautiful Texas hill country. So this is just what I knew as a child growing up. We lived in San Antonio, Texas, but we went there on weekends, and that's where I spent my summers. And so I have a little piece of the Texas Hill Country in my soul. I've lived in New York City all my adult life. I studied here at Yale. I've never really gone back and lived in Texas. But the that part of Texas is something that I feel attracted to. So when I was giving a talk about my book, Landscape Design, A Cultural and Architectural History. I met someone who introduced me to a man who is there in Johnson City, where our ranch is, and he has a ranch that is really my role model. And he has a car. He calls himself Land Steward. He was the uh, CEO of a 
food franchise, Church's Fried Chicken. And when that was bought out, he took his fortune and put it into the land, just as my father had taken his uh, modest fortune and put it into uh, another piece of property very close by. This is also close to the LBJ Ranch. So when I saw what David Bamberger was doing, I went back and I said, we're not very good land stewards. And then we took a whole different tack, my husband and me. Instead of running this place as a little B&B, which is what we were doing, um, we began to really think about it environmentally. And I could go on at greater length if you want me to, but to try to put it in a nutshell, we hired uh, someone with a degree in environmental science, and he's learned a lot, by the way, about opening up views, about view sheds, and about uh, landscape design elements for me, but I've learned a lot from Scott as well, and we've worked with the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Austin. We've worked with University of Texas. We've done uh, studies, cultural landscape study in one instance, uh, and so forth. So in the Pedernales River Authority uh, on water management, and we have removed Ash, juniper, you have to remember, remove. It isn't all about planting trees. You need to, if you're managing a landscape, sometimes you need to remove unwanted vegetation. The junipers, the, the native ash juniper, is a voracious uh, spreader and drinker up of the water in the uh, aquifer. The, Hill country is all sits on a limestone aquifer. So as these trees invaded our property, uh, we, we were a poster child for bad management. So by removing those trees, we're recharging the aquifer. We have some little seeps that are beginning to run We ha when, when it rains. Remember, we're in a droughty climate there. And we are doing that kind of water management, and we're also planting native grasses and doing other things. Uh, fire, of course, is uh, an issue down there because of very uh, hotter temperatures, even than I remember as a child. It used to be very hot, but now it is hotter, and there are more forest fires. So there are lots of fronts that we are working on. And it's a great satisfaction to have a property that is just about exactly the size of Central Park, but so entirely different and with different motives for its restoration. Seems like it's a really great space for your imagination to run a little bit. In the spirit of passing wisdom to the next generation, and as you look forward in time, what are some things you might say to emerging conservationists, like, like those of us here at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies? as we search for meaning in our personal and professional lives. This is going to sound kind of corny, but I'm going to say to you, remember the three Ps. The three Ps are patience, passion, and persistence. So you have to start with the V word too, and that's vision. So you have to know what your vision is, and then you have to pursue it pretty passionately. You have to really care. 
and then you just plain can't give up and you can't take no for an answer. And that's the best advice I can give. I think that's a wonderful spot to stop. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Betsy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ever, very much.